Father, thanks for being a good God that loves us. Thanks for being with us. Even as we sang this morning, that you are merciful, you are a forgiving God, forgiving us. We thank you for that. Pray that you would be with us this morning as we look at your text. In 2 Samuel, God, as we've continued on this journey and this story about kings, what it means to hold power, what it means to trust you, would you give us eyes to see what we need to see this morning? God, give us ears to hear what we need to hear. Give us soft hearts to be transformed into your son's likeness. We need your spirit to do it this morning. We ask that you would. We pray in your name. Amen. I was a freshman at the University of Arizona years ago. I was walking across this main strip called the mall. If you're familiar with it down there, there's this big, long, grassy strip where there's food and there's activity happening all the time. And when you're a freshman, you kind of walk through kind of those areas. And I was walking across and I saw this table set up. And it was somebody that was offering free t-shirts. And all you had to do is sign up for a credit card, right? And I'm going like, who's going to give an 18-year-old a credit card? But I was like, I want a free t-shirt. That sounds good to me. And so, of course, I take the bait and I fill out all of my information and I get a free t-shirt. And I walk back to my dorm room and all of a sudden, a couple weeks later, I get something in the mail. It's this free credit card, which for me as an 18-year-old was like, this is like free money. <laughs> like I can spend it on things I need. I don't have money. I can pay later, right? Like it's, you know, an interest rate is like 25% or something like ridiculous, like because they're preying on these young adults. Now, I figured it out pretty quickly how the system works and how that's not a wise way to in use your money in that way. But let's imagine just for the sake of the argument this morning that I didn't understand that. And I continue to swipe that card. And for the next 10 years, I live off my credit card. And I rack up $100,000 in debt. Now, in the midst of that, I'm going like, I, 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 I can't even pay it. Let's, let's pretend bankruptcy is not a thing at this time. And I'm just saddled with this debt that's heavy on me. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes and says, hey, I found out you have this massive debt. And I'm going to pay it off for you. I'm going to pay it in full. Not only am I going to pay it in full, your, your $100,000 is totally erased over those 10 years, but I'm also going to give you $100,000 and put it in your bank account. You would be, I would be massively thankful for that, right? And sometimes when we talk about the gospel and we talk about our sin and how it's been forgiven, our debt has been forgiven, that's often some of the ways we talk about that transaction of Jesus taking away our sin and imputing his righteousness to us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you're familiar with it, says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now we can talk about that, and we can talk about sin, and how sin gets taken away through the blood of Jesus, and we talk about that here at Redemption, but sometimes what we don't talk about is the ramifications or the results of our sin, the consequences of our sin, even if it's been wiped away by Jesus. Here's what I mean by this. Imagine that was true and somebody paid off my debt and gave me $100,000. How have I been shaped and formed over those 10 years by only using my credit card? What are things that have happened in me in the way I view life, right? I would have learned to just be a consumer. I would have learned not to have patience but just to swipe whenever I want to swipe. And even if that debt gets paid off and I have money in the bank, I still have to undo some of those habits, don't I? 
Those are some of the natural consequences of that type of activity. And what we're going to see this morning, if you've been with us, we've been walking through the series called We Want a King as we've been looking at these subjects of the man of Saul, the man of David, and we're about to get into the man of Solomon in a couple of weeks, these kings in Israel's history that, man, they have a rise and then they have a fall. And we looked last week specifically at David's fall in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel and how, man, he did horrible, unspeakable things. But at the end of it, in chapter 12, Nathan comes to him and David repents. And in that repentance, Nathan says, listen, you're, you're forgiven. God is forgiving you because of your heart of repentance. But he goes, but there's still consequences. And so what we're going to see in the story this morning is that we're going to look over three and a half chapters is we're going to see some of the consequences of David's sin. Even though he's forgiven, he's been formed and shaped and there are natural results because of his sin. And so for us to have the conversation of going, okay, we've been forgiven for our sin, but because of how we've been formed and how we've been shaped, how do we need to be aware of some of the consequences, the natural consequences to our sin? That's what we're going to look at this morning as we unpack this together. And the way it's going to be broken up, it's a little bit, if you've been reading along with us, the, the, the reading schedule says we're looking at chapters 13 all the way through chapter uh, 18, I believe, today. We're going to break it up a little bit different. We're going to look at chapters 13 through half of 16 because it really pockets this idea of the fall of David, the continual fall of King David, but then the rise of his son Absalom. And so we've been talking about there's three kings, but there's really like three and a half kings because what happens in this story is Absalom, his second son, kind of rises to power and takes hold of kingship in kind of this pseudo way. And then next week we're going to see Absalom's downfall and David rises back to the prominence of king. So that's where we're going to go. If you have a Bible, if it's not already open, open it up to 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking again at chapters 13 um, through half of chapter 16. And what we're going to see again this morning is the reality of that sin always leads to death. We talked about that last week if you were with us. We saw what David does is he kind of holds power and he abuses his power with this woman named Bathsheba. He abuses it and then he snowballs that sin. We talked about the progression of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, the consequences of sin last week. And it's clear it has massive devastating consequences. As he does what he does to Bathsheba, and then he ends up killing her husband, Uriah, in the battlefield. He repents of that sin, but what we're going to see is there's these ripple effects of that sin. There's an echo of what happens, and what we're going to see in the text today is maybe some of the worst parts of the Bible. Right? Judges can rival this with some of the content of what happens in Judges when uh, everybody makes their own decisions apart from God. But what we see here, and specifically in chapter 13, is more graphic than we saw in 11 and 12, and it's horrible. For the next several chapters, it's terrible, terrible, terrible stuff as we let sin and the consequences of sin run rampant. That's what we're going to find this morning. And how generational sin... If it gets unchecked, man, it just gets worse. And that's what we see in this story. My wife's uncle was a writer in Hollywood for years, and he wrote for a sitcom for Disney called Good Luck Charlie. 
It's ran for a while. And so uh, we had the opportunity to go to Hollywood with our kids at one point when it was kind of in its heyday and go to a live screening and, and watch uh, a live show of Good Luck Charlie. And then we got to go to his office afterwards and kind of mess around on the set. It was a ton of fun. And then afterwards, when we're in his office, I'm looking at the whiteboard of the writer's room. It's super interesting to me. And on the whiteboard, this huge whiteboard, and it's got A, B, and C. If you're familiar at all with sitcoms or how writing works, there's kind of a main story, the A story. Then there's the B story, the kind of the subplot of what happens in other characters in the midst of it. And then sometimes there's a C plot as well. I say that because what we're going to be looking at this morning and going over three and a half chapters, a lot of times we're walking line by line every single verse through the Bible. We're not going to do that this morning. It's just we would be here until four o'clock. Right? We're going to be looking at the main plot. What's the big picture that the Bible is trying to communicate to us in these several chapters of the story of David and the story of Absalom? We're not going to be going every line. And so in the midst of that, uh, I will be stopping and sitting in some text, and we'll be reading some text, and then the other text I'm going to be summarizing the story. So let's walk through this story as we see David continue to fall, and we see Absalom rise, his second son, and how that happens. And then we'll look at what it means for us. So again... Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13, I'll be reading some, I'll be summarizing others. Follow along with me in your Bible if you can. So chapter 13, verses 1 through 4 say this. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, a son of Shemiel, David's brother. And Jonadab was very crafty, was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning by morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Let's stop there just for a second and understand the context of what's going on here, right? David has multiple wives, so he has multiple kids that are kind of half-brothers and sisters because they all share the same dad and David, but they have different mothers. And so his oldest son, Amnon, is kind of pining over his half-sister, Tamar, and he's got this friend kind of acts like the serpent in the midst, if you're familiar with the story in Genesis 3. He's crafty, comes alongside him and says, oh, here's what you need to do. Why, why are you so sad? You're, you're the son of a king. You should get whatever you want. And in, in the following text, what his friend does is he helps him devise a plan where Tamar comes in and says, hey, ask your father David to send Tamar that you need food, that you're feeling sick and you only want Tamar to cook this certain type of food for you. So he follows the plan. David sends Tamar to him. And she makes this food in the midst of it. Amnon hatches his plan, says, everybody out. I just want Tamar to feed me by herself. And then in the text, again, it ensues. And it tells a horrible story of sexual abuse in the midst of these two. Where it says, Tamar is saying, like, don't do this. Because he says, come and lie with me. Don't do this. This is, you're going to be a fool in Israel. This isn't uh, what you need to be doing. This is not going to honor the Lord. And he just ignores it. And the text says, because he's stronger than her. He sexually assaults her. Now, after he does that, Amnon feels a certain way. In verse thirteen of chapter, uh, verse fifteen of chapter thirteen, it says this: "And then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love 
with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Have you noticed when you're indulging your eyes like we talked about last week and this progress of sin happens and then when you actually get what you're after, it doesn't satisfy you? <laughs> That's what happens in this moment. He turns from loving his half-sister to hating her and saying, get up and leave my presence. I don't want anything to do with you. Tamar tries to reason with him and the rest of the story saying, maybe if you just marry me, I wouldn't have this shame. How am I going to get rid of my shame is what she's saying to him in the story. And he doesn't care about her at all. And he says, you need to leave. So she puts ashes on and she dresses in a certain way to expose her shame in the midst of their community. Verses 20 through 22 of chapter 13 says this as we continue the story. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke with Amnon, neither good nor bad. But Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So we see Absalom in this moment. He kind of minimizes her sin. He goes, like, just, just stay in the back. Take it to heart. It's your brother. This take it to heart language is going to come up later again. David is angry, rightly so. This is his daughter and what his son has done to a daughter. But he doesn't do anything, which we're going to find out in a minute. He's just angry at the time. Absalom hides his anger. He kind of stuffs it, but he's kind of plotting revenge to eventually kill her. As we continue on in the story, what Absalom does is he kind of stews in his anger for about two years, the text says, and then he hatches this plan to get away on a trip. He asks David, his dad, he goes, hey, let's go away on this trip. And David's like, nah, I don't really want to do that. And he goes, no, 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 we're going to go. And the text says he presses David. He kind of bullies David into this idea of, no, let me take your sons on this trip. And David goes, okay, well, I'm not going to go, but you can go ahead and go. And he specifically wants Amnon on this trip because... During this trip, they get him drunk, and they end up killing him. And what Absalom does in this, he doesn't kill him himself, but he instructs him to be killed. And he says, don't worry about it. Know that I'm the one instructing the killing. And really what we see in chapter 13 is a mirror echo effect of David's sin again, as he does what he does to Bathsheba, and then he sends Uriah to be killed. The same thing happens in his two oldest sons. Amnon takes sexual assault on his sister, and then... What happens is Absalom kills his brother. He doesn't do it directly. Just like David, he sends somebody else to do it. But he's responsible. The word gets back to David, and it's a word that all your sons have died. And it's incorrect. And Jonadab corrects it and says, no, 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 it's not all your sons, David. It's actually just Amnon because of what he did to Tamar. And your other son has been plotting this for two years. So David is undone about this. He's heartbroken. In the midst of it, Absalom leaves. He flees because he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. That's the end of 13. Beginning of 14, we see the return of Absalom. Joab, who is the general, David's general, who we've been following along the story, he's, he's going, man, I want Absalom to come back. And so he sends a woman to David to make up this story about these two brothers fighting in the field. And similar to the Nathan story, it implicates David. He's saying, like, listen, if these two brothers are fighting in the field and one kills another, won't 
they give grace, won't he be back to be able to come and live in the presence of his family again? And David goes, he should. And so she goes, well, why isn't your son living with you now? And so it implicates him, and he goes, okay, you can bring him back, but when you bring Absalom back, he's not to be in my presence. He can live on the property, but he, I don't want to see him at all. So Absalom comes back in the midst of it. Chapter 14, verses 21 through 26 say this. It says, then the king said to Joab, behold now, I grant this. Go back to the young man Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground, paid homage, and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and in the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab rose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Verse 25, now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish at all. When he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair on his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. That's about five pounds. So it should clue us in as we've been following along the story, if you're new with us, uh, that the narrator is giving specific details that should echo for us to go, who was described in his outward appearance in the midst of the story? Saul was, right? So this is kind of, again, another nod to going like, okay, uh, Absalom looks really good from the outside. It's cluing, on us, uh, cluing us in to what's about to happen, specifically what happens with his hair, which will be his downfall we'll talk about next week. So Absalom lives back in Jerusalem for two years. But he can't be in the king's presence. He gets frustrated by this. And so he goes to Joab, the, the general, and goes, like, listen, I need to be seeing my dad. Because, again, he's trying to move himself, position himself to be the next king. And so he's not going to do it unless he gets the favor of David. So he goes to Joab, and he sends for Joab. And Joab ignores him. He sends a second time for Joab, and Joab just ignores him. So what does Absalom do? He goes, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go light fire to his fields. So do lights a flame and like burns all of his fields. And Joab goes like, why did you burn my fields? And he goes, you're not listening to me. I need to get your attention. And he goes, you have my attention. What do you want? And so Absalom goes, listen, I need to be in the presence of the king. I'm tired of this. This isn't working. You either put me in the presence of the king or kill me. Gives him an ultimatum. So Joab goes back and goes, okay, well, let's do it. So he goes to David and David goes, okay, I'm ready to see him now kisses him, they're, they're back to normal in some sense. That's the end of 14. Chapter 15 starts this way in verse 1. It says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and would say, what city are you from? And when he said, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that if I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss it or kiss him. And Absalom did it to all of Israel who came 
to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of men in Israel. We're going to talk about two phrases here when we get back down to it, but verse 6 there, stole the hearts is, is, is not a, we might hear that or read that and go like Hallmark movie, like, oh, you stole my heart. That's not what this is implying, right? The heart in the Hebrew is like your whole being, your whole self, your mind. And so what the text is saying is like Absalom is really sneaky. He's actually doing this manipulative move to gain the trust of the people. And he's done it. So he does this for four years. Absalom does. And then he asked David, he goes, hey, David, I, I want to take a trip to Hebron. I want to go and worship there. And in the midst of it, this is a whole plan. He, he tells everybody in secret, he says, hey, when I'm gone, I want you to yell out and announce that I am the king. And so he leaves with that plan in tow. Chapter 15, verses 12 through 14 say this. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us and quickly bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David gathers up his crew. He listens to that. and He goes, we need to leave. We need to flee. He ends up leaving. Verse 30 of chapter 15 says, But when David went up and ascended the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, they went up weeping as they went. What happens is they're all leaving Jerusalem. He's gathering up his people, and they're leaving, and they're sad, and they're going out because Absalom is doing what he's doing, and David's going, well, I guess this is it for me. I guess I'm done being king. And he walks out in the midst of that in chapter 16. Zibia comes to him. If you remember the story that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in chapter 9, Zibia is the servant of Mephibosheth. And David's like, where is Mephibosheth? Like, why isn't he come with me? And Ziba comes to him, or Ziba comes to him. I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. Ziba. <laughs> Let's call it Ziba. Ziba comes to him and says, listen, Mephibosheth didn't want to come with you. And David's sad about this. We're going to find out next week that he's lying to him, but he's sad. And so what David says is, okay, all the land that I gave to Mephibosheth, I'm actually going to give to you. And then there's one other scene in uh, the beginning of chapter 16 that's worth noting. There's a man, as David is exiting, they're all leaving. There's this guy that all of a sudden is at the top of this mountain, and he sees David, and he is just throwing rocks at him and talking trash. His name is Shemiel. And he throws shade at David the whole way. And he's just throwing rocks. And David leans over and his buddy's like, hey, we should take this guy out. He actually says, let's go cut off his head. And David goes, no, we're not going to do that. It doesn't make sense to do that for us. That's the end of the section of David falling and Absalom rising. What the heck does this have to do with us today? I know that was a lot. That was a long story. Thanks for engaging with me. Now let's talk about the practicality of like, what does this mean for us? Again, in the consequences of sin, the ripple effect of David's sin and what happens and what I think the text is doing for us is it's putting a mirror up to David and a mirror up to Absalom and going, what do you do with the consequences of your sin? Even if you've been forgiven, the ripple effects of your sin and the formation of your sin have natural consequences. How do you react to them? 
And we see David and Absalom reacting in very different ways. And hopefully there's a third way that we'll talk about. What we see David moving into is this passive apathy. Passive apathy. That's the first point. And as we walk back through the story, you see David, he gets very angry in chapter 13, verse 21. But he doesn't do anything. He doesn't make any adjustments. He doesn't hold his son Abnon accountable. He doesn't do anything in the midst of it. It just says he's angry, and then he kind of sits there. Again, Absalom wants to take Amnon, his brother, to the getaway. And David's like, no, that's not a good idea. But we see that Absalom keeps pressing him and going, well, no, 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 we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And he kind of just bullies David. And David just goes, well, I guess, I guess. Go ahead. He kind of falls back again to this passive apathy. And then David wants to go after Absalom. In the end of chapter 13, it says that his spirit is yearning for him. Now, we don't know if he wants to go after his son to correct him. Or to establish a relationship with him again. It doesn't tell us, but he wants to go after him, but he doesn't do it. He just kind of sits there. He doesn't make any action, any movements. And then David allows Absalom to come back, but he doesn't let him in his presence. This is an interesting move. It's because you could go like, well, David has good boundaries, right? Like, he's okay, but like... He's here for two years, and David just doesn't seem to do anything about it. He doesn't make men's with him. He doesn't uh, rebuke him for killing his son. He just kind of goes, well, he can, he can stay here, but I'm not really going to do anything about it. It's not until Absalom makes a plea to come into his presence that he allows it. And then again, Absalom, as he's kind of gaining power and prestige in this sneaky way, he's doing this for four years, the text tells us. I can't imagine that David doesn't hear about this at some level. Joab doesn't hear about it. Nobody comes, like, somebody's got to tell David at some point, do you know what Absalom's doing? He's out there in public, and he's saying if he were the king, he, and David doesn't seem to do anything. He's just silent, and he's absent. In the midst of our sin, and the consequences of sin, man, I, I think there's something there for us to recognize. I know I've had conversations with guys, uh, and, and, and women are in this category too, but when it comes to pornography, and if somebody uh, slips up and messes up in this area, and oh man, they looked at something, and then once they look at something, like, well, I'm already in, I'm already in sin, like I might, I might as well take the next four hours and look at things I don't need to look at, right? They move into kind of this passive, apathetic mentality, because well, I already messed up, so I'm just going to kind of continue to mess up. I had somebody that was my director uh, in the ministry that I used to work with for about five years. And part of his job, part of his role in the midst of checking on me and making sure the ministry was going how it needed to go, part of his role was to check on our finances, uh, not our personal finances, but we had to raise support for our job. And so to say, hey, how's support going? How are you doing with that? In the five years that he supervised me, he never asked me once that question. Do you know Why? Because his finances were terrible. So because he was implicated, he never felt like he had permission to say, hey, how are things going with you financially? 
And don't we sometimes do this in our sin, the consequences of our sin? If we, even if we get forgiven in parenting, we go like, well, uh, uh, even if we know we should say something, there should be some type of consequence. But because we feel guilty on our own or we don't feel comfortable moving forward, we can kind of just freeze and not really do anything. This is bad for David. And this is a consequence of his sin, that he just moves into this kind of apathetic place. Now, this is bad for anyone, but it's really bad for a leader. And David's the king. Diane Langberg puts it this way in this context of not doing things you ought to do as a leader. She says, withholding power in the face of sin, abuse, and tyranny is also a wrong use of power. It is sin against God. Complicity with the evil he hates. Jesus says, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Silence in the face of such evil can be a kind of abuse of power. For in staying silent about someone else's pain, we have nullified our God-given power to speak truth. God asks us to use our verbal power and to open our mouths for the mute, for those without such power. Complicity is a strangling of our God-given power meant to, be an act, meant to be active in this world on his behalf. David's daughter has like the worst thing done to her, and he does nothing. He does nothing. It's an abuse of power that he doesn't speak up, that he doesn't punish. And we see this in his life and his consequences of his sin. So if passive apathy is one end of the spectrum, we see the other end of the spectrum in his son Absalom, and that's aggressive control. Aggressive control. Well, if you're not going to do anything, well, I'm going to do something. And we see this time and time again in this narrative, like Absalom, he doesn't look aggressive at first because he doesn't say anything to Amnon after that happens in, in chapter 13, but he's plotting his murder slowly. And then again, we see he kind of bullies David into this corner of going, no, 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 we're going to go on this trip. He's got this aggressive control to him. He doesn't get what he wants from Joab when he requests it. And so what does he do? Well, I'm going to burn your fields. He's got this aggressive control mentality to him. And then he gives this ultimatum. He's going like, listen, you either let me into your presence or kill me. We see this again in what he does in chapter 14 when he says this in verse 4. He says, and Absalom would say, oh, that there were a judge in the land. I'm sorry, this is the beginning of 15. Oh, that there were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and would give me justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss it. Verse 6, and Absalom did this to all of Israel who became the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This phrase in verse 5, take hold, is the same exact phrase that Amnon does to Tamar. It's a taking hold. It's a stealing. It's a grabbing for power that isn't yours. And so what Absalom is doing in this mentality is he's grabbing for the power of the kingdom. He's going, I'm going to take what isn't mine, and I'm going to take it by force. Now when we think about this type of activity in the midst of our sin, even us personally. This happens all the time in marriage counseling, as my wife and I do it often, where somebody will hurt somebody else. 
And in the midst of that hurt, we're going, okay, your call, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to forgive. To love and forgive. Just like God is forgiving you, you forgive that other person. And so as that person moves to forgiving the person that has harmed them, the person that's harmed them usually gets frustrated that things aren't getting healed quick enough. Right? It's like, well, well, you said you forgave me. Like, can't we move past this? And sometimes it flushes itself out in this kind of aggressive control in this ultimatum. You said you forgave me. We need to move past this right now or else. And you kind of hold it over them. And that's not healthy. That's a consequence of your sin. So we're always talking to these couples that have hurt one another, going like, yes, you need to call them to forgive them, but you have to realize there may be some time that you need to rebuild that trust in the midst of your relationship, and that's okay. It's not okay for you to kind of, uh, if you're the one that's been hurt, to kind of hold this forgiveness over them, kind of like bullets in your gun. Well, I'm not going to forgive you until I'm ready. You can forgive by faith, but there, there needs to be a rebuilding of that relationship. And oftentimes when we see people in the consequences of their sin, they get frustrated and they go, man, why aren't you forgiving? I'm already past this. And they need to be patient in the midst of that. So to not swing to passive apathy or aggressive control, what's a third way that we actually see David come to at the end of our story? It's a patient dependence. It's a patient dependence in the midst of the consequences of your sin. To go, okay, even in the midst of my sin, I've been forgiven by that person for that situation. I still need to be patient and I still need to be dependent for God to rebuild the trust that needs to be bound up in our relationship. And David starts to get this as we see him exit Jerusalem in 16, specifically with Shimei, where this guy is throwing rocks at him, talking all this trash to him. We're going to see him show up again in chapter 19. And David doesn't retaliate. He goes, no, let him do what he needs to do. And he moves forward. It says this in chapter 16, 11 and 12. It says, leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that he, that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with this good for his cursing today. David begins to take some activity and even saying, hey, we're not going to do this. He moves to kind of this patient dependence on the Lord to say, listen, I'm going to trust the Lord in the midst of the healing that needs to happen in the midst of my sin. I realize there's consequences for my sin and I'm going to trust the Lord in the midst of it, and he kind of moves into this non-anxious presence as he exits the city. Psalm 3 gives us a good picture. I love the Psalms in the midst of these stories because in Psalm 3, it's kind of David's journal entry as he's leaving Jerusalem, as Absalom has kind of uh, obtained power and kind of kicked him out of the city. Listen to what he says in the first six verses in this patient dependence. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are my shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I would not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. 
So David moves from this passive apathy of not doing anything to this patient dependence of saying, God is going to be my shield. God is the one that is going to lift my house. I'm going to trust in God in the midst of the consequences of my sin. And I'm curious. I mean, David's, right, this is about his sons and his daughters and the evil they do. And I'm wondering, like, as a dad, like, man, is David passive initially because he doesn't want his sons to feel the consequences of their death? And sometimes as parents, you go like, man, I, I don't, I don't want to have to lay down that consequence on my child because I know it's going to hurt them. But in love and care, you're going like, if you withhold that consequence, you're not doing your child a helpful service. They're not going to learn. In the midst of David withholding his judgment on his sons, because, man, it might just be too hard. I'm so thankful we have a loving father who didn't withhold judgment on his son so that we could be free, so that we could be forgiven, we could be connected to God again. Because sin always brings death. There's these ripple effects of our consequences of our sin. And again, a lot of times we feel like, well, we paid the debt. The $100,000 is gone. I should be good. We shouldn't have to work through anything. You said you forgave me. And you got to realize there's consequences outside of just that initial forgiveness to rebuild trust, to rebuild favor in the midst of it. And you have to be patient. You have to be dependent on the Lord to do that work. And again, often we kind of swing to passive apathy or we swing to aggressive control when in the midst of it, we need to trust God and need to be patient and dependent on him. Jim, who's one of our pastors, and and Trevor, we were uh, in the office this week, and we were kind of talking about this passage and going like, dude, what do I do with this thing, man? It's like six chapters, and it's like, uh, this is just like, what's happening here? And we just started talking about this idea of consequences of sin. Even when you've been forgiven, there's still ripple effects of your sin that God has to heal and mend up in the midst of this having dependence. And Because I wondered, like David, in his apathy, is he just going like, well, like I blew it. And Nathan said, this is what's going to happen to me. And it gets worse in the next part of the text in 16, man. It just gets worse. But Nathan said, this is what the Lord is going to do to you. Is David just going, well, like, like I, I made my bed. I just have to lay in it. And so he just kind of like, well, I'm just going to take it. I'm just going to wear it in the midst of it. I don't know if that's kind of his attitude. And we were talking about this phrase of like laying your bed and, and kind of, or making your bed and kind of laying it. And Jim made this comment. He goes, you know what, but... Now that we look to the New Testament and we see what Jesus has done, you still have to lay in your bed. There's still consequences to your sin, but you don't have to lay in your bed alone. Like Jesus is with you in the midst of your suffering. And the Father is good to give you those consequences of your sin. He's right to give you those consequences of your sin. Because if he doesn't give you the consequences of your sin, you don't really feel the difference. And the next time you get tempted, you're going to go, oh, it's no, it's fine. I'm going to get a get out of jail free card and The father goes, no, you need to feel this. David needs to feel the weight of his sin and the consequences of that. But the beauty, again, for us today is that even if there's consequences in our sin, we don't have to face them alone. Like we have Jesus with us in the midst of our consequences. 
And so the hope this morning is you leave and you're dealing with certain situations, certain relationships, that there's sin involved and you need forgiveness and maybe you've taken those steps of forgiveness and they said, yes, I forgive you and you feel that weight off your shoulder, but there's still this ripple effect of the consequences to say, okay, what does it look like for me to continue to step into this conversation, to this relationship and love this person well? And that's what we need to do. We need to depend on the power of the Spirit to help us mend those broken relationships well. And that's our hope. And the hope we have is because of what Jesus has done for us. So let's be those types of people that don't just sit back and just go, well, I just messed up and there's nothing I can do about it. Or those people like Absalom that kind of try to grab control and say, okay, I'm going to fix this on my own. But let's be people of utter dependence on God's spirit to heal the broken parts that need to be healed. Let's pray. Father, we are desperate for you to help us in the consequences of our sin and the consequences of the destructive nature of sin. You're so good and kind to us to give us mercy for forgiveness for the wrongs we've done but we need your healing in the ripple effects of those things help us understand what that means to be dependent on you as we walk through situations with people that we need healing we need you to do it in us help us be people that again don't swing to kind of passivity or swing to aggression but center ourselves in you for dependence We ask that you do it. We pray it in your name. Amen.